You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 326 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. A merry, merry Christ Mass to you all. In this last episode of 2022... We will, as you might have noticed, if you've paid attention to the title of this episode, we will be uh, going over some random junk. You see, when doing this podcast, I come across things or I record things that I save for a future episode. Things I'm thinking like, um, I might need this in, I don't know what or for what or when, but I might need this, so I'll I'll keep hope keep hold of it and then eventually I don't need it but it's still a good thing Uh, I still want to share it so uh, it feels pointless just throwing it in the bin I did save these audio samples and recordings for a reason they caught my interest so uh, so without further ado let's check out some of the random junk I've collected in the last year First up is a recording of myself talking about gardening. I recorded it earlier this year during summer when trying to make an episode on my gardening endeavors. I talked about that in a few episodes that I I was planning to do a gardening episode and I never really did. This recording was done during the fear-mongering time in the media in regards to the Ukraine-Russian war. And something's happened in the world that is completely disgusting. It's, you know, a a threat that we haven't seen before. It's a conflict that needs to end somehow. We need to stop our common enemy. And of course... I'm talking about the fucking deer that keeps eating my fucking salad. You see, I'm trying to grow salad. And uh, where where is it? All I see are stumps. I didn't know deer liked salad. And they also like cauliflower, it seems. But uh, looking here uh, where I've been growing things, I can tell you that celery... Onions, corn, uh, radishes, carrots and spinach are doing just fine. Deer don't seem to like those things. And the radishes are... I don't think I buried them the seed deep enough because they're just popping out. I just picked one up here. They, they're popping out of the dirt. Uh, maybe they're supposed to do that. There's nothing like growing your own food. Um, It's pretty cool. I I have actually only two, what do you call them, two corn (laughs) growing. I haven't grown a a corn field, but it looks, the the actual corn cob is coming along nicely. So that's pretty cool. 
Um, indoors, or not indoors, but in inside the greenhouse, I've got. I've uh, because it has walls. Uh, the deer cannot get to it. So my watermelon, the bell peppers, the tomatoes, strawberries, the cucumbers and the squash are doing just fine. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on growing things, but I can tell you one thing. It's been extremely rewarding. Something I learned that I should have known, but I never thought about it. Because before I only had houseplants, I, I never tried to grow my own food. Something I learned uh, growing all these vegetables is that it's very similar to having a child. I mean, I remember, I mean, my tomato plants are huge. You know, like they're huge. They're taller than my wife, some of them, although she's pretty short, but still. I remember when those tomato plants was just a little, a little tiny leaf sticking out of the dirt of the earth. And uh, I uh, planted them like long, long ago. And uh, it didn't look much, it didn't look like much at the time, but now... They're majestic. And I still haven't eaten them, uh, the tomatoes, because they're currently green and they haven't become red yet. So I'm still waiting for it to happen. I don't have a huge uh, land area, but it's large enough. And uh, if a push comes to shove, I could convert it all into like uh, growing food. Maybe I should, but... Uh, I decided to start kind of small, you know, just to learn and then you can expand as you go along. Um, and I've always had a problem with my ha houseplants. I always ha I've always had a lot of houseplants, but um, they've, you know, I'm a busy, I'm a busy guy. And I forget to water them sometimes and I haven't been too good taking care of my houseplants. So I, I started getting houseplants that can last longer without water and for instance cactuses are amazing for that purpose. But um, since I started growing food I've been more conscious and uh, this led me also to take care of my houseplants better. Which led to the houseplants looking better and not being as dry as they used to be in the past. Yeah, I mentioned a few times that I was going to do a gardening episode and, and it never happened. And I, I'm not sure why. I, I just didn't feel I had enough to say about it. I, I There were some people I was going to have on uh, on the podcast that were uh, skilled in gardening. And, and uh, they even agreed to do the podcast. And then they blocked me in social media. They must have seen me ranting about uh, anarchism or something. And I scared them away. I don't know. But um, I still think my regular listeners are deserving of, of an update. And 
Yeah, so uh, the summer that just passed was my first uh, real uh, experience with with gardening. Uh, maybe it's not gardening. Uh, maybe that's the wrong term. You know, growing food. Yeah. But I, I was also gardening, so gardening slash growing food. And um, I learned a lot. I did a lot of mistakes. I did some things correctly. And uh, next year, uh, I am going to plant a few different vegetables than I did this year. Uh, some I'm going to do the same. Some I'm not going to do at all. I also... Um, uh, need to uh, figure out a few things uh, for instance I need to I have a greenhouse and that's fine but I also have an outside area where I plant things and I had some trouble with with animals and that so I'm gonna have to figure out some sort of fence thing um, but the thing I got the most from the gardening was this sense of uh, this peace of mind I really liked it and I, I understood why the rat race cannot allow you to grow your own food. You know, the convenience of just going to the shop and buying your food uh, is, is uh, addictive. And you think you're saving time and you think you're making it easy for yourself. But what you're losing in that transaction is this sense of peace working with the vegetables, working with the plants, fixing your garden, uh, invaluable, I would say. Of course, you know, and everybody knows that to, to, you know, I didn't grow my own, f I grew my own food, but it's not like I could 100% uh, live off that food. I mean, maybe the food I, during the time when I grew my own food, maybe it only came up to like 25% of all the food I ate, you know, so it was quite limited. Uh, it was also my first, uh, it's like a trial run, you could say. Uh, I'll never get to 100%, that's impossible, uh, where I live. Uh, it's not 100% it's not impossible, I could do it, but right now in my situation, it's not possible. But maybe I could stretch it to 35%. And still a lot. Um, if you can grow your own food, I recommend it. Even if you live in an apartment and just grow some tomatoes. Uh, I mean, that's better than nothing. Uh, I am thinking about getting chickens. Uh, or um, hens, I guess, is the correct term. Uh, Hens that lay eggs. If I have uh, four or five uh, egg-laying birds, uh, maybe I could get up to 50%. I mean, I could live off eggs. I love eggs. So I could, I could sustain myself on eggs alone, almost. So that's one thing. Uh, I'm also thinking about getting bees, honeybees. So those are a few of the plans for the future. Anyway, let's move on. Um, now it's time for a segment from an anarchy episode from the BBC radio show In Our Time Philosophy. After a brief introduction, you will hear Peter Marshall 
uh, an author best known for his 1991 history of anarchism called Demanding the Impossible. Uh, you will hear him talk about uh, anarchism. And I, I thought it was quite interesting, so that's why I'm sharing it. Hello. Uh, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon famously declared property is theft, and perhaps more surprisingly, that anarchy is order. Speaking in 1840, he was the first self-proclaimed anarchist. Anarchy comes from the Greek word anarchos, meaning without rulers, and the movement draws on the ideas of philosophers like William Godwin and John Locke. It's also evident in Taoism, Buddhism, and in other religions. In Christianity, for example, St. Paul said, there's no authority except God. The anarchist rejection of a ruling class inspired Peter Krop Kropotkin, a, Russia, a Russian prince and leading anarcho-communist, to utter this rousing cry in 1897. Either the state forever, crushing individual and local life, or the destruction of states and new life starting again, on the principles of the lively initiative of the individual and groups and that of free agreement. The choice lies with you. He identified some examples of anarchism in action, including the Lifeboat Association. In the Spanish Civil War, anarchists embarked on the biggest experiment to date in organising society along anarchist principles. Although it ultimately failed, it wasn't without successes along the way. So why has anarchism become synonymous with chaos and disorder? What factors came together to make the 19th century and early 20th century the high point for its ideas? Joining me are Peter Marshall, philosopher and historian, John Keane, professor of politics at Westminster University, and Ruth Kinner, senior lecturer in politics at Loughborough University. John Keane... When the word anarchy, when was the word first used in English to describe someone's political stance, and why did it appear then? It's it's it, it's a word that finds its way into English in the middle of the 16th century, and it's synonymous with the absence of government, with lawlessness, with disorder. Milton, for example, in Paradise Lost, refers to the waste-wide anarchy of chaos. What's remarkable is that this meaning still survives until today, but roughly at the end of the 18th century, it undergoes a change of meaning uh, so that become, it becomes a, a wholly positive term. Anarchy stands for the self-discipline uh, uh, and self-imposed uh, rules uh, among individuals. They have no... Uh, they don't, they don't uh, stand for uh, uh, organised government over them. Uh, that brute engine was the way that Godwin described all government... They are hostile to parties. Uh, the old anarchist slogan that if voting could change anything, they'd abolish it is uh, redolent of that. The rejection of all false gods, for example, organised, institutionalised religions. Uh, the opposition to uh, the wages system, wage labour, markets. The strong sense among uh, uh, anarchists, all seen as positive, as uh, individualism... Uh, self-imposed uh, judgments, reason, means that anarchy uh, and anarchism came from the end of the 18th century to be associated with cooperation, with love, uh, with, uh, for example, mutual aid. And I would say as well it's important to see that, that the tradition of anarchism came to be associated, and it has a prescience today, because of its uh, identification with nature, with the simplicity of nature, with uh, the closeness to nature. So just as uh, societies, industrialised societies, dominate nature and have destroyed parts of nature, anarchists object that this uh, is a reason for, so to say, standing in defence of nature. I, I mean, the word anarchism uh, first enters the English language uh, in 1642, at the point at which 
the 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 royal estate uh, is in collapse, and the beginning there is the beginning of rebellion, and the word anarchist also appears in this period. Not surprisingly, because it is a term uh, of abuse used uh, principally by royalists to describe those who are fermenting disorder. So basically it is used by people who have the control of society against those who seek to overthrow them, in English, from the beginning. That is its first use. Yes. They will not see them as opposing a different sort of society. They see them as merely destructive and therefore to be got rid of. Yes, and uh, it's this chaos, this uh, waste-wide anarchy of chaos, as as Milton calls it, which uh, generates enormous fear among the defenders of um, of the monarchy. So, in a sense, you sort of demonise them instead of explaining them or taking them intellectually seriously by throwing this word at them and sort of fudging, splattering, uh, obscuring the issues. But at this point uh, in time, there are no anarchists in the positive uh, late 18th century sense. No, we, that we, comes later, and it's associated, I think, with the French Revolution. Uh, Peter Marshall... Before we take one step forward, let's take two steps back, because I, I, I'd like listeners to show, to, to know what you know about, about the fact that it's been bedded in in various ways to the Western tradition long before this. Can you tell us... I'm sorry to go back to the Greek oven, I'm not. Uh, can you tell us what happened there? Yes, I think that, that uh, anarchism is actually very ancient, or what I would rather call the anarchist sensibility. Yes. I think wherever... I mean, the, the state is quite a recent development in, in human experience, and people have le- lived outside the state... For, 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 for millions, uh, hundreds of years. Longer than they've years. lived inside the state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and they've governed themselves and they've, they've run their own affairs very peacefully and cooperatively. But I think that you have, uh, with the Greeks, you have the, the beginnings of the separation between religion and philosophy and people beginning to question authority and to think for themselves. And uh, there is a lively libertarian spirit, I think, that comes through certain Greek philosophers. I mean, the sophists who taught for a fee how to argue well and, <laughs> and, and, and be good at rhetoric. They nevertheless sent off barbs of, of, of wit and, and they had very many challenging ideas of conventional morality. Uh, and then even, even uh, Socrates, who was accused of, of uh, being a sophist, he was, he was an anti-democrat, but he nevertheless believed that an unexamined life was, was not worth living and he was condemned by the Athenian state for corrupting the young. I think even more importantly amongst the Greeks are the, are the, the Cynics uh, and also the Stoics. The Stoics um, believed, they made a distinction between nature and custom and, and they believed that the one should live according to, to uh, the laws of nature rather than the laws of man. And uh, they, uh, Zeno, they're one of their main exponents, in his Republic, very different to the totalitarian one of Plato, um, has a vision of society without property and without government, based on universal brotherhood. So we have that, and we also have it in, 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 in the religions. We see it in... Can you... I'm, I'm sorry to ask you to be brief, but... Yeah. Uh, in, in Christianity, Buddhism, Taoism, briefly, it is there, isn't it? The idea that we... That it's not yet called anarchism is around there, too. It is, and it, and it, and it comes through very strongly in, say, 6th uh, century BC China, within Taoism, the Lao Tzu, for instance... Um, pointed out that the more rules and regulations there are, the poorer, poorer people become. The sharper men's weapons, the more trouble in the land. And that, and he was, that the Taoists um, were arguing for a society, a decentralised society in harmony with nature. Again, we find in, in Buddhism, uh, although they, there's a stress on community, 
There's also a belief in autonomy and self-disciplined freedom. And, and one can work out one's own salvation without script, outside scriptures uh, and, and, and masters. And then uh, I think in, even more so in Christianity, you quoted at the beginning St. Paul saying that there is no authority except God. The early Christian father, St. Augustine, went even further and said, love and do what you will. And particularly in the Middle Ages, there was millenarian sects who believed there was a second coming of Christ. and They were in a state of grace, the Anabaptists, the, the Hussites, the Brethren of the Free Spirit. They all believed that they, they, they could live, it, since they were in a state of grace, they could live without uh, the government of, 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 of the state or of the church, and, and that they could do no evil. And this comes through actually during the, the uh, English Civil War with the ranters, and the diggers, uh, Win Stanley, St. Gerald Win Stanley, said that all men stand for freedom, for freedom is the man who will turn the world upside down. And they, they wanted to form a common treasury. And God forbid there are even masterless women <laughs> joining in <laughs> with free love and, and rejection of law and government. Now, we, uh, we could talk about Tom Paine, we could talk about Blake, we could talk about various people feeding him, but let's get on to the first person who called himself public in. Anarchist Peter Marshall, uh, Joseph Proudhon, and he's best known for his declaration, property is theft. Can you explain uh, why property was at, seems to be at the centre of his uh, philosophy attack and why he was influential and gripped this idea of anarchism and from him, from the time that he got hold of it, as it were, he has been in our politics? Yes, well, in the middle of the 19th century, it, it was uh, Proudhon who did deliberately call himself an anarchist. And he said, I'm a... I'm a a strong supporter of order, but I am in the fullest sense an anarchist. And that he linked uh, uh, a rejection of government with uh, the rejection of, of exclusive property. So when he asked in his, in his book, what is property, he said property is theft. It's theft because it, it's the, the, the large property owners are taking the surplus um, from the workers themselves and they are not receiving the full fruits of their labour. And as, as such, it is a, an unjust institution. And in its place, he recommended a form of, of what he called mutualism, which is in which uh, people uh, um, set, set up uh, uh, banks with free credit, with trade unions, where they would share... Not unlike cooperative movements. Not, uh, uh, very similar to the cooperative yes. movement. Yeah. Uh, not, not, uh, but with, without um, any uh, government, obviously, to, to organise it. And this had a huge influence on, on the 19th century um, uh, working class movement, particularly in France and also in, in Spain and Italy. Uh, Robert Owen, of course, has more influence in, in, in Britain. But um, it was, he also took a very, very strong uh, dislike of parliamentary politics. He was actually a Republican candidate in the 1848 revolution. And the very experience of being lost, as he called it, in, into this... Uh, Parliamentary Sinai. Uh, meant he, <laughs> thereafter, he declared that that universal suffrage was the counter-revolution, <clears throat> and and uh, he wanted to work uh, with peasants and with uh, the workers uh, to create a more just and equal society, without government and without exclusive property. He eventually he didn't actually reject property in the in the sense of of possession. Um, uh, on a limited basis. In fact, in some ways, he saw it as a bulwark of freedom, but he rejected uh, large-scale um, ownership. 
Can we then move to Bakunin uh, with you, uh, John Keane, um, in sense of what did he bring and add to? We're talking about the middle of the 19th century still. Well, I think of all the 19th century anarchists, uh, uh, Mikhail Bakunin, uh, uh, I think, lived and looked the part. Uh, copious brandy drinker, uh, huge appetite for reading and food, uh, great cigar smoker, apparently in prison in a month in Saxony, he went through 1,600 cigars, uh, wild-looking, and the great uh, enemy of Karl Marx in the first international this International uh, Workingmen's Association that tried to develop across borders in Europe and beyond solidarity among the emerging working classes. Bakunin's objection uh, to Marx and the Marxists... Is this the best way to define his ideas, through his objection to Marx? I think this is uh, what Bakunin today is remembered for. Um, It is the point at which I think the, the, the black splits from the red, that uh, anarchism becomes uh, hostile to what they take, as Bakunin uh, I- insists, uh, uh, on the authoritarianism of, uh, of Marxian socialism. The, the central dispute that Bakunin has with Marx has to do with this dictatorship of the proletariat idea. So uh, Marx and other socialists and communists uh, have this idea that there will be a transition to socialism and then communism, and it will require self-discipline and administration and government as a, as a transitional device. For Bakunin, that uh, is, uh, if you like, uh, trying to cast out devils with Beelzebub. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's the recipe for a dictatorship over the proletariat. And, of course, Bakunin proved to be right about this, that uh, lurking within uh, Marxian socialism was the possibility of a new kind of political authoritarianism. And this, uh, uh, I think, was a restatement by Bakunin of this um, uh, uh, classic modern anarchist idea that government is the principal enemy of autonomy, of freedom. I find anarchism, especially when I discuss it with people, uh, to be something many find hard to understand. And... uh, they often go like, oh, yeah, it might work on paper, it's never been tried, it's never been successful. They might say things like this, but that's a logical fallacy. Anarchism cannot be tried. Anarchy is not a social or political system. Anarchy is the fundamental state of nature into which you were born. Anarchy exists every single time you voluntarily interact with other people. Anarchy factually informs the vast majority of your daily activities, even in today's mad world. Yeah, that was a quote by Robert Eschausier. Eschausier, is that how you say it? Okay, what's next? Uh, Let's move on with some more random junk, as you see here. What do we have? What else do we have? Okay, let's go now. Let's go conspiratorial. Frank Snepp arrived in Vietnam in 1969 and stayed there until he was evacuated when Saigon fell in 1975. Frank Snepp spent a good deal of time working with the press, 
while he was in Vietnam and developed the ability to plant stories in major media outlets like uh, the New York Times, the New Yorker, LA Times, Chicago Daily News. uh, Stories he planted that supported the CIA's goals. And this is something the CIA and other three-letter agencies still do to this day. They plant stories. And people gobble them up. Anyway, listen to what Frank Snap has to say about this. Frank, I think a good many of us have the, the impression that the CIA operates completely undercover, that you're, you're all spooks, as they say, or they used to say out in the Pacific. Are, uh, do you have a high profile? Or do people know what you do for a living? Surely. In Saigon, uh, I had various covers. I was a State Department officer. I was a military officer at one time. But uh, everybody I dealt with, agents, journalists, knew that I worked for the CIA. It is the agent who works under very deep cover, under unofficial cover, as a businessman, as a journalist. Now, he's the one uh, who is not identifiable and whom nobody else uh, would identify with the agency. What years were you there? I got there in 1969, just as uh, Vietnamization was getting underway, and I uh, left with the last CIA contingent on the the roof of the American Embassy when uh, the North Vietnamese were moving on the city in 1975. I was there through the latter stages of the war. Did you go out on that helicopter in in the famous pictures we saw? Uh, well, one the CIA helicopter was uh, the one that uh, forms that, that famous uh, photograph, but I wasn't on that one. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you briefed the press, did you not, when you were there? Well, I had several jobs. One of my jobs was that of analyst. Uh, I also was an interrogator and indeed briefed the press when we, the CIA, wanted to uh, circulate disinformation on a particular issue. Disinformation is not necessarily, uh, not necessarily a lie. It may be a half-truth. And uh, we would pick out a journalist. I would go do the briefing and uh, hope that he would put the information in print. What was your percentage of success? We were pretty successful in planning uh, information of a rather rarefied nature. For instance, uh, if we wanted to get Uh, across to the American public that the North Vietnamese were building up their force structure in South Vietnam. I would go to a journalist and advise him that in the past uh, six months X number of North Vietnamese forces had come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail system through southern Laos. Now there is no way a journalist can check that information. Uh, That's data derived from uh, uh, radio intercepts, uh, spy in the uh, sky photography. So either he goes with the information or he doesn't, and ordinarily or usually the journalist would go with it because it, was, it looked like some kind of exclusive. And um, I would say our percentage of planning that kind of data was uh, 70 to 80 percent. Can you recall the names of any of the uh, correspondents uh, you, uh, you used in that manner? Used is a loaded term. The correspondents we targeted were those who had terrific influence, the most uh, respected journalists in Saigon, like Robert Chaplin of the New Yorker magazine, Kai's Beach uh, of the Los Angeles Times from time to time, and also he worked for the Chicago Daily News. Uh, 
Uh, Bud Merrick of U.S. News and World Report, uh, Malcolm Brown of the New York Times, uh, even Maynard Parker of Newsweek magazine. Uh, we would uh, go after these gentlemen. Uh, I would uh, be directed to cultivate them, to spend time with them at uh, the Caravel Hotel or the Continental Hotel, to socialize with them, and, and slowly but surely to try to gain their confidence by dolloping out uh, valid information, information which was true. And then I would drop in a, into a conversation the data that we wanted to get across which might not be true. Uh, one piece of data, for instance, uh, that we managed to plan in the New Yorker magazine had to do with uh, a supposed North Vietnamese effort in 1973 to develop airfields along the border of South Vietnam. The reason we wanted to plant this information was that we were trying to persuade the U.S. Congress that Saigon should be continued to, should continue to get a great deal of aid uh, and that uh, the North Vietnamese were the chief violators of the ceasefire accord. That was printed in uh, the New Yorker magazine under the byline of Robert Chaplin, as indeed was a great deal of such information which uh, which we tried to circulate. Uh, considering that you knew the amount of disinformation, or most of it, that was being fed to the correspondents, what do you think, or what did you think, of the quality of reporting that came out of Vietnam? Reporting from correspondents who were operating independently of the agency, who did not rely on agency sources, uh, was very good. Uh, I cite in particular Peter Arnett, I remember after the fall of Saigon, one of my jobs was to query journalists who'd stayed in Vietnam after the collapse, and as they came out, I was to get in touch with them and try to persuade them to report on what they'd seen. This was not a disinformation job, it was an intelligence collection uh, operation. I contacted Peter Arnett at Associated Press headquarters, and I said, Mr. Arnett, I'm Frank Snap from the American Embassy. Could you tell me what you saw? And there was a silence on the line, and he said, uh, you can read about it in my Associated uh, Press dispatch. Uh, he was one of the few journalists who turned me down, however. There were a great many others who were willing to trade their information for information I might have, which uh, uh, was uh, a frequent transaction in Vietnam. Any other uh, reporters you can remember who refused to have anything to do with the CIA? Can you name them? Well, there were, there were lots of young reporters uh, who didn't want to deal with the agency because uh, uh, they were very suspicious. Many of them had come out of the anti-war movement in the United States and uh, had a natural disinclination to, to trust any official agency. Uh, offhand, the names escaped me because, again, we weren't interested in going after the reporter for Ramparts magazine. We were interested in targeting those reporters who could get their material in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and so forth. And um, once again, I want to make it perfectly uh, uh, clear that we were not hiring these reporters. They were not operating as our spies or as our dupes. But in a war situation, when there are so few sources of information, uh, a reporter may rely on a CIA contact and he becomes vulnerable. In Saigon, if I planted a piece of information with a reporter, I would ordinarily then try to create an environment in which he could not check the information. Mm -hmm. 
I would go to the British ambassador and brief him on the disinformation I had just given the reporter. So when the reporter wanted to cross-check what I told him with, uh, say, the British ambassador, New Zealand ambassador, or what have you, he would get false confirmation, the same message coming back at him. He'd say, aha, I've got proof that Frank Snap told me the truth, when in fact what he'd gotten was simply an echo of what uh, I'd given him in the first place via the British ambassador or other of our friendly diplomatic contacts. Frank, a, a two-part question. What, what were the objectives of the, or what was the objective of the CIA? What about the moral implications of what you were doing in feeding this information? Did the objective override the moral implications, moral problems? Well, the objective of the agency in general is to generate intelligence and get it back to Washington, to, to get at the truth and make sure the policymakers understand it. When you pl plant disinformation, you are diverging from that objective, and I think probably in retrospect it was uh, very counterproductive. I am, as an ex-CI agent, uh, opposed to the disinformation activities uh, in which I was involved. I admit that I was involved, and I think it uh, uh, served no useful purpose. Uh, propagandizing the American uh, public or Congress is not the CIA's job. Uh, as to the morality of what the CIA was doing or that particular uh, activity, uh, the war was a very relative thing. It was a relativistic environment, and uh, morality seldom came into play when uh, you were operating in the field. Uh, in my estimation, a CIA man should be amoral. Uh, that may sound pretty shocking to somebody, but what if my morality were that of a, a Nazi or agent, if you will? You wouldn't want me to be your intelligence officer. Keep the morals out of intelligence. Keep the truth in and stay away from disinformation. Well, what was the primary purpose of the CIA as you viewed it? Was it an, an intelligence-gathering agency, or was it was an agency that was primarily involved in covert operations? They were both uh, part of the CIA's mandate in Vietnam, and the agency performed um, covert action, covert operations very well when the operations were held to a limited size and were of uh, limited objective. When they got big, like the Phoenix program, they got out of hand and innocent people died as a result. Innocent, by that I mean people who were not connected with the communist movement. You might refresh our memory on the Phoenix program briefly. The Phoenix program was um, an assassin, well, it was a program designed to neutralize the communist uh, cadre network throughout South Vietnam, mainly through capture, but it got out of hand and what happened was Phoenix operatives operating under CIA control and the control of other agencies would, would kill the, the suspects, the people who were suspected of VC connections. Let's talk about Frank Snap for just a moment. You wrote a book uh, titled uh, Decent Interval, right? Uh, it was published. It's on the stands right now. What was your personal experience with the CIA after writing that book? My personal experience with the CIA was uh, a lawsuit. The U.S. government sued me for publishing Decent Interval without the CIA's approval, even though 
Uh, nobody ever accused me of publishing any secrets in the book. Uh, the lawsuit uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court came down with a decision which is historic in its implications. Uh, the Supreme Court decided that every government worker in a position of trust, whether in the CIA, State Department, National Security Council, has an implicit obligation to submit what he says or writes about his work to the government for censorship. If he doesn't, he is liable to monetary penalties, forfeiture of all of his profits, and all of the profits from decent interval, uh, my profits were forfeited to the government, and he is subject to, to a lifelong gag order, which means that he must continue to submit his statements to the government for approval. Again, even if there are no secrets involved, and even if he has signed no secrecy agreement with the government. This involves an implicit obligation. Had you signed a secrecy agreement? I signed in? six different secrecy agreements, and uh, the secrecy agreement that I signed on leaving the agency said the only thing I had to protect was secrets. I protected secrets. The Supreme Court said that didn't matter. I was obliged to protect even non-secrets. This is something unprecedented in American law. Straighten me out on one thing. If you write on anything else other than the CIA and your experiences, you do not have to submit it, right? Novels, screenplays, all are submitted. Everything? Everything. To the C not to the CIA, to the U.S. government for censorship. And again, anybody in the government now is under the same regime of censorship. One of the victims of the of the Vietnam War was, was the First Amendment, and my case was one of the, the cases that came out of the Vietnam War. To whom in the government do you submit it for review? Uh, I submit it first to the Central Intelligence Agency, and it's a case of uh, having the criticized censor the criticism. If I object to something the CIA tries to delete, then I go to court. And I have to argue before a judge that what I want to keep in is not injurious to the agency. Mm -hmm. That's an impossible argument to make because the courts in this country increasingly defer to the national security community in any cases like this. Well, now, how did, uh, how did your case differ from the decisions in the Pentagon paper? Was there any similarity at all? Yes, indeed, because uh, in the Pentagon Papers case, the Supreme Court recognized for the first time in American history, or I should say for the second time, that prior restraint, the use of gag orders, was permissible under certain circumstances in instances of impending peril to the national security. In my case, the Supreme Court broadened the circumstances under which prior restraint, the use of gag orders, uh, is permiss are permissible. And now gag orders can be applied to people who are not threatening the national security, who have simply held a job in the government and wish to speak about something that they have gained uh, knowledge of as a result of their government employment. What is your view of the Supreme Court decision in the Pentagon Papers case? It differs with the view normally held by uh, the press. The press views the Supreme Court decision to let the New York Times and the Washington Post publish the Pentagon Papers as a great victory for the journalistic profession and the principle of free speech. Uh, my view is somewhat different. Uh, as I said before, uh, that decision by the Supreme Court 
uh, in effect, recognize the legitimacy of prior restraint and the use of gag orders under certain conditions. And uh, that's something that is not in the press's interests. And yet the press is often so short-sighted as to, to emphasize uh, the, the, uh, the small uh, victories and to neglect the implications of uh, what has been done by a court. Well, as a, uh, a strategy analyst, you've seen and read the Pentagon Papers, I presume. Was there any breach of security in that, in your opinion? There were several pieces of inf information in the Pentagon Papers which bore classified labels. As to whether they, their publication was injurious to the national security, I would say not. Some of the information which bore classified, uh, a classified label was, in fact, disinformation, information which was not accurate, but nonetheless classified. Can you think of anything that uh, would have given aid and comfort to the Moscow? Absolutely not. The Central Intelligence Agency has in itself, uh, has itself conducted a post-mortem on the Pentagon Papers, so has the Pentagon. Both have concluded that the publication of the papers had no uh, adverse consequences for national security. And yes, they still do it today. Most recent, Mark Zuckerberg said this on uh, Joe Rogan. Is the FBI, I think, basically came to us some some folks on our team it was like hey um just so you know like you should be on high alert there was the, we we thought that there was a lot of russian propaganda in the 2016 election we have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of of um uh that's similar to that so just be vigilant fewer people saw it than would have otherwise so it definitely by what percentage i, I don't know off the top of my head but it's 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 meaningful all right, enough of politics and fuckery by the state. Let's, let's get into the mysterious and magical world of alchemy. Here is an alchemy poem by Terence McKenna. I don't know much more about it than that, but I like the poem and I like Terence McKenna, so let's listen. The world is a maze, and what you why? Forsooth of late a great man did die, and as he lay a-dying in his bed, these words in secret to his son he said, My son, quoth he, tis good for thee I die, for thou shalt much the better be thereby, and when thou seest that life hath me bereft, take what thou findest, and where I have it left, thou dost not know, nor what my riches be, all which I will declare, give ear to me. An earth I had all venom to expel, and that I cast into a mighty well. A water ick to cleanse what was amiss, I threw into the earth, and there it is. My silver all into the sea I cast, my gold into the air, and at the last into the fire, for fear it should be found, I threw a stone worth forty thousand pound which stone was given me by a mighty king, who bade me wear it in a fourfold ring. Quoth he, this stone is by that ring found out, if wisely thou canst turn this ring about. For every hope contrary is to other, yet all agree, and of the stone is mother. So now, my son, I will declare a wonder, that when I die, this ring must break asunder. The king said so, but when he said withal, 
Although the ring be broke in pieces small, an easy fire shall soon it close again. Who this can do, he need not work in vain, till this my hidden treasure be found out. When I am dead, my spirit shall walk about. Make him to bring your fire from the grave, and stay with him till you my riches have. These words a worldly man did chance to hear, who daily watched the spirit, but nay the near. And yet it meets with him and every one, yet tells him not where is the hidden stone. Now, this stuff is obscure. It's deliberately obscure. It was obscure to its contemporaries. And the whole effort became one of uh, collecting this kind of material and finding it out. And you have to understand, this was all circulating in manuscript. Very little of this was printed. The Teatrium Chemicum Britannicum uh, was not printed uh, until uh, 1652. Hey, this is Anthony Tyler, host of Black Hoodie Alchemy on the Fringe FM. You can catch me every Monday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific time, where we uh, talk about the dark side of metaphysics and we'll chill a little bit. Uh, And you can catch me the day after on Spotify or Apple or Amazon or wherever else you stream your podcasts. If you've ever wondered what someone like Carl Jung might say about serial killers or perhaps cryptids, then this is the show for you. Skeptical, yet open-minded, empirical, but philosophical. We are going to talk about some really weird stuff, so I hope you join me on Black Hoodie Alchemy. Take it easy. On the YouTubes, there are many kinds of channels you can follow. Reaction channels, mukbang channels, prank channels, comedy channels, and PewDiePie or Mr. Beast. But they are already making bank. Consider supporting a channel that as of yet hasn't really decided even what it is. If you build it, nerds will come. The Natural Born Alchemist YouTube channel. Search for that on YouTube and you will find it. And apart from posting the podcast, I make videos on alchemy, psychedelics, anarchy and films. Hopefully you'll enjoy them. It would really help if you subscribe. Thank you. Subscribe. So I hope you support the podcast in social media, share it with your friends, uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, become a patron, all that jazz. Uh, I'm going to close with the track Toltec by Nameless Archive, mixed in with the poem you just heard by Terence McKenna for a different vibe and experience of those words. If you want to check out more of Nameless Archive's music, uh, go to iTunes or Spotify and just write natu- uh, Nameless Archive. Or I was going to say Natural Alchemist, but you can write that also and you will find the podcast. Anyway, just head over to namelessarchive.com if you want to check out Nameless Archive music. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Uh, enough random junk for this episode. And... Um, You might be listening to this in the future, but if you're not, you know that uh, New Year's is around the corner. And I won't talk to you again until 2023. So I'll see you all next year. Freedom is in the mind. The world is a maze, and what you why? Forsooth of late a great man did die, 
And as he lay a-dying in his bed, these words in secret to his son he said, My son, quoth he, tis good for thee I die, for thou shalt much the better be thereby. And when thou seest that life hath me bereft, take what thou findest, and where I have it left, thou dost not know, nor what my riches be. All which I will declare, give ear to me. An earth I had all venom to expel, and that I cast into a mighty well. A water eck to cleanse what was amiss, I threw into the earth, and there it is. My silver all into the sea I cast, my gold into the air, and at the last, into the fire, for fear it should be found, I threw a stone worth forty thousand pound, which stone was given me by a mighty king, who bade me wear it in a fourfold ring. Quoth he, this stone is by that ring found out, if wisely thou canst turn this ring about. For every hope contrary is to other, yet all agree, and of the stone is mother. So now, my son, I will declare a wonder, that when I die, this ring must break asunder. The king said so, but when he said withal, although the ring be broke in pieces small, an easy fire shall soon it close again. Who this can do, he need not work in vain, till this my hidden treasure be found out. When I am dead, my spirit shall walk about. Make him to bring your fire from the grave, and stay with him till you my riches have. These words a worldly man did chance to hear, who daily watched the spirit, but nay the near, and yet it meets with him and every one, yet tells him not where is the hidden stone.